Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the episode of today, which is the part two of my little neuroscience of treatments for depression little series. So last week, I covered the first line of defense when it comes to treatments for depression, which was all around the monoamine hypothesis. So if you are somebody that's ever been on antidepressants or spoken to your doctor about getting on antidepressants, they likely would have, the first thing they would have offered you is something along the lines of an SSRI. Um, and then if that didn't work, trying other things like SNRIs and things like that. But that's in my last episode. In this episode, I'm talking about other treatments for depression, which I'm focusing on the glutamate hypothesis and kind of the glutamatergic system within in how to treat depression. So there's a big difference between the two. If you haven't listened to the first one and you're interested, go check that one out. It doesn't have to be in order, but I kind of do refer back to the first one a couple of times in this episode. So it might be helpful to understand the monoamine hypothesis versus the glutamate hypothesis. Okay. Now in this episode, I did get a lot of information for today's episode through articles published primarily in PubMed. Uh, if you're into reading longer, more technical published journal articles, then I would recommend one journal article in particular, which is loaded with a lot of information of what I talk about in today's episode. And that is a paper that was published in 2022 called Glutamatergic System in Depression and its Role in Neuromodulatory Techniques Optimization say that 10 times really quickly. Anyway, so that's a good paper if you really want to like delve deep and get quite technical. Now, we do know that there's a large portion of people with major depressive disorder that just don't respond well at all to the first line of treatments, which is SSRI, which is the most common one and also the safest one that is used in to treat depression. We also have out of these patients, up to 46% of these patients that don't respond effectively to treatment at all, which results in something called treatment-resistant depression or TRD. Treatment-resistant depression is when somebody has tried two or more antidepressants in a proper dosage and a proper time frame, like it's administered properly, they've done it over you know enough time to make sure that it definitely doesn't work and then they've done the proper washout period and then tried another one. So it's been done properly and found no positive effect pretty much whatsoever on their depression. So the monoamine hypothesis clearly has its limitations and it also does not explain the cause of depression because if it was the cause of depression, then you would likely see a much higher rate of, you know, remission or a much higher rate of, you know, cases where people find that it's actually treating their depression where that's not the case. So it's not to say that the monoamine hypothesis should be discarded altogether. It's definitely one of the factors that contributes to depression, but it's not the underlying cause and there's clearly more going on within the brain that is responsible for depression. 
Another thing that I wanted to mention before I get into this topic is that when you're talking about any kind of treatment within the brain, whether it's behavioral or whether it's um, pharmacological, you need to talk or we need to talk about neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity refers to the brain's ability to reorganize itself according to um, internal or external stimulus. So it's your brain responding to some sort of stimulus and because of that response to the stimulus, there's some reorganization going down. And this is also known as neuronal adaptation. And neuroplasticity can happen on a structural level, a molecular level, a functional level. There's many different ways that neuroplasticity can present itself or manifest. And in patients with major depressive disorder, changes are seen in the brain neuroplastic changes are seen within the brain when you compare them to healthy controls. And you see a difference in volume in brain regions. You also see changes in signaling cascades and also changes within the cells as well. So when we talk about neuroplasticity, I think initially our first thought is, oh, it's a positive change. You've rewired your brain and you've healed, which is a lot of what goes down in neuroplasticity. But neuroplasticity could also mean that the brain has made changes and it's actually been detrimental to the individual, okay? So it can be for the good or also for the negative as well. Now, in this in this episode, we're going to be talking about ways of modulating circuits or modulating activity in the brain by targeting the glutamate pathways. And I'm going to go over, kind of very lightly skim over, a few alternative treatments for depression that are based around this glutamate hypothesis. Um, and the glutamate hypothesis is basically saying that depression is more linked to either too much or too little excitability within the brain when we're talking about glutamate, which is the major excitatory neurotransmitter. And when you modulate these or play, like kind of tinker with the levels of activity in different regions within the brain, then you might find that it has a much more effective, it's a much more effective way of treating depression versus going around the monoamine hypothesis. And these treatments that I'm going to talk about are a lot newer um, and they're used to target target treatment resistant depression and major depressive disorder. And because they're a lot newer, there's obviously still a lot more studies that have to be done to understand more about these treatments, to understand how effective these treatments really are. But it's just extremely promising with the information that we have right now. A lot of these treatments are, are proving to be extremely promising for people that have tried other forms of antidepressants and it's just not worked for them. Okay, so... Glutamate, like I said, it's the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. So we've got excitation and we've got inhibition as well as a whole bunch of other things. But glutamate is what's um, behind a lot of the excitatory activity within the brain. And so many of the mechanisms involved in depressive states have something to do with glutamate. So there's a bunch of neurobiological factors associated with depression separate to having lower levels of extracellular availability of serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline, which is the monoamines that we were talking about in last week's episode. So these other kind of factors are inflammatory system activation, abnormal neural activity, neurotransmitter dysfunction, and dysfunctional neuroanatomic circuits as well, okay? And this has all somehow related to glutamate. Now, we currently have more and more studies that are coming out supporting new treatments in way of neuromodulation, so modulating what's going on within neurons and within cells and within the brain, such as transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine, photobiomodulation. So we're going to go over these things and what they look like 
as I've already said before, treatments for depression is not a one-size-fits-all. And given that reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, that's that part of the brain that's just behind your forehead bone, um, which is takes care of a lot of your personality, your you know reasoning, executive function, all of that. So reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex and in the anterior cingulate gyrus are found in depression and reduced neuroplasticity as well. So when we target those areas specifically, we're seeing some improvements in people that have depression. Now, these treatments are based around stimulating areas of the brain in order to increase neuroplasticity and glutamate is involved as excitatory neurotransmitters are heavily involved in neuroplasticity, okay? And it's also, when I talk about um, stimulating, we're also talking about increasing activity and also decreasing activity depending which areas of the brain we're talking about. So it's about modulating. It's not like let's bump up glutamate altogether or let's reduce it altogether. It's about, you know, some, in some areas we need to bump it up, in some areas we need to bring it down. That's also one of the reasons why it's so complicated treating depression because it's not this, you know, blanket rule, let's just decrease everything or increase everything. It's actually playing around with different areas of the brain and targeting different regions of the brain. But the exciting thing is if you are someone that has suffered from depression and if you are someone who has treatment resistant depression or who has tried antidepressants and said, yeah, I found I found an improvement, but it just wasn't as good as I thought it would be, or I've got side effects, or I'm just not really loving how I feel on them. I'm noticing some benefits, but not. The beauty of it is that there's more and more and more in the way of discovering new treatments to target depression. So if antidepressants have not worked for you in the past, there are other avenues that you can go down to treat your depression. Obviously, it all has to be done in a clinical setting, but there's alternatives and there's more and more alternatives as science progresses in this field. One thing that I, I'm not going to go in depth about, but electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, is an old stimulation technique that's been used for a really long time. And it's a lot more invasive than the ones that I'm about to talk about now. But it's been really effective in treating depression and it increases connectivity between brain regions and it also increases cerebellar volume, okay? And it's also been found to increase white matter in pathways between the prefrontal cortex and between the limbic system. Now, this is really important to note because it's showing that when you stimulate the brain, and there's other ways that we're going to stimulate it that's nowhere near as um, invasive as electroconvulsive therapy. But when it's, it proves that when you stimulate the brain, you see all these changes occur. And if you've listened to my episode ages ago where I spoke about the effects of stress on the brain and how to reverse it, I think that's literally the title of the episode. It was like over a year ago I released it. I explained the importance of increasing connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the more emotional centers, the limbic system within the brain, okay? When these regions are better connected, you're able to reason a lot better. You're able to talk yourself down from certain emotions a lot better. You're, you're bringing your reasoning part of the mind with your emotional part of the mind and you're, can't, you're able to self-soothe a lot better. So it's not just for stress or anxiety. It's for all mood disorders. When these two regions of the brain are better connected, you're able to self-soothe. You're able to feel a lot better. Mood disorders are reduced significantly. Okay. So we've seen that in these old treatments that have been used to treat all kinds of psychiatric and mood disorders, we've seen substantial benefits with 
depression with patients who have depression. So let's talk about some less invasive treatments that can be done. The first one that I'm going to go into is transcranial magnetic stimulation. So this is a non-invasive procedure where you've got this electromagnetic coil. It kind of looks like a figure eight on a stick kind of thing. Um, And it administers basically electromagnetic pulses over the scalp. Okay. So it's just held over the head. It's not invasive it's not going in like you're not injecting you're not you're not going under general anesthetic it's just placed on the scalp and this stimulates the nerve cells and particular sites that need to be targeted because you you can target particular areas of the brain by where you place this coil okay now these sites where this coil is placed are really believed to have decreased activity in depressed patients so the aim with this m- magnetic field is to stimulate them and to increase the activity in these areas so It's currently used to treat depression and it's also used to treat other psychiatric disorders. Now, in depressed patients, this region of the brain, it's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's just one of the one of the regions, a lateral region of the prefrontal cortex. Um, In a lot of people with depression or in, in, in major depressive disorder, that activity in that area is dysregulated. But the reason it's so effective that this treatment is so effective as an antidepressant is still not fully understood. Of course, we see that it's upregulating activity, but it is quite effective and we don't understand all the mechanisms behind what is going on. So it's pretty interesting and we need more and more studies for this, but it's very promising. So It's these quick short pulses. It's a coil placed against the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and you do it. The patient does it for five days a week for around 15 to 40 minutes, depending on the patient per session, five days a week for four to six weeks. Okay. This is really effective on people that have treatment resistant depression and there's very few side effects. People can resume completely normal activity after they can drive home after the the session and the the effects after you do that four to six week course of treatment, the antidepressant effects can last between six to 12 months, which is pretty fucking unbelievable because you're not taking any medication. It's just this increase in stimulation in the brain. So I find that very fucking fascinating. And the aim here is to basically correct abnormal brain functions that are associated with depression in that particular region of the brain. And these magnets, the strength of these magnets are close to the strength of an MRI magnet, which is a pretty fucking strong magnetic field. So it's, yeah, pretty cool. The next one is transcutaneous direct current stimulation. This is also non-invasive and it's where you have these electrodes that are placed on your head and it applies this Um, constant low current in order to alter cortical excitability. And cortical is the cortex. It's like the top couple of millimeters of the brain where there's a lot of, when you talk about the new brain versus the old brain, it's a lot of kind of the higher order functions. And, you know, the newer brain is in the cortex. And when you look at the human brain compared to other, you know, mammals and other animals, that's why the human brain seems to be so evolved is because we've got a much larger cortex and that's why we've got these like wrinkles all over the brain so you can pack in more surface area on the brain without our heads having to be like 10 times the size that they actually are. So that's going on a tangent, but it's in order to alter cortical excitability. And you get two electrodes. One is, it's called anode and the other one is cathode. So it modulates resting membrane potential. So anodal stimulation increases cortical excitability and the cathodal decreases cortical stimulation. So here you've got 
an in, one that's increasing, one that's decreasing, and this altering of neuronal activity is seen to reduce depressive symptoms as well. Again, we don't really understand every single underlying mechanism behind it, but again, it comes down to this tweaking with the excitability within the brain and how that can help increase connectivity within other brain regions. So a lot of it seems to come down to increased communication between brain regions and activity between brain regions, but not too much and not too little. It's finding that that balance that seems to be missing in patients of major depressive disorder and other psychiatric disorders as well. And then we've got photobiomodulation. So like, again, so many therapies, we still don't understand the mechanisms the, the complete mechanisms of this treatment. And this one is very new in the scheme of treating patients on a wider scale. So we need more data, more research behind it. But it focuses around all the altering effects of light on the brain. And you guys have heard me talk about you know, the, the benefits of sunlight in the morning for the brain, the benefits of sunlight for people with ADHD in the morning, um, seasonal affective depression, all of that and how light and sunlight and natural light can really affect people with mood disorders. So this is kind of playing on that kind of knowledge. And light has a very big effect on our sleep, our circadian rhythm, our cognition. And because of all of that, it's got a really large effect on our mood. And light therapy has been seen to have really good antidepressant effects. And restricting light or light deprivation can actually bring on depressive behaviors. So showing that light has a strong influence on mood and behaviors that are related to a low or positive mood. It's basically explaining why this therapy can be so beneficial for people with depression. Now, this treatment can basically, this light treatment can penetrate this, the central nervous system. And the aim of it is to increase the synthesis of ATP, increases neurogenesis, and it also decreases inflammation. And all these things, the, the, the reduction in all these things are linked to depression. So it's called photobiomodulation therapy, PBMT. It's non-invasive. It administers photons of red and um, near-infrared spectra light. And in animal models where this has been tested, um, when they've targeted the prefrontal cortex, it works as a very effective antidepressant in animals as well. So that's, I find, a really fucking interesting one. I have a brain fact. I don't know if it's an entire episode. I definitely have a brain fact on light and its effect on mood. And if you're somebody that – because they've actually done all these studies that pe- the people who live in those countries where it's really dark over winter, depression rates are a lot higher during that time versus when there's a lot of light over summer. So it's called seasonal affective disorder, SAD. I think I mentioned, I think I called it seasonal affective depression before. It's seasonal affective disorder, uh, SAD. And yeah, so I, I did a whole brain fact on that. And I also talk about how the light, you know, the importance of if you're somebody who has, for example, any kind of attentional disorder, any mood disorder, waking up and staying in a dark room in your bed, just, you know, like scrolling through or like kind of, you know, flapping around is kind of going to really affect your mood and your attention throughout the day. So the best thing you can do is get into direct sunlight as early as possible within the day or as as close to waking as possible. You don't have to be up when the sun is 
is rising. But when you wake up, get out into the sun and it's going to really help set your circadian clock but also help set your mood as well. So it's very, very heavily linked. It's really important. And then the last one I'm actually not going to dive into because I've got an entire episode on it, but it is ketamine. So ketamine has also really helped us understand um, the glutamate hypothesis because we see the effects of ketamine on the brain and how it has really fast acting effects on depression and how it it acts on the activity on the brain and how you can have one dose of ketamine, but the antidepressant effects last a whole lot longer after your body has completely eliminated the ketamine. So it's really, really fascinating. If you want to know more about that, then um, go listen to episode number 257. I released an episode, it's called The Neuroscience of ketamine, I'm pretty sure I called it that, but it's episode 257 and it's a much deeper dive into ketamine specifically and how it alters and regulates levels of glutamate to be a really effective treatment for um, depression and especially for people that have treatment-resistant depression. Ketamine is something that's currently being used more and more um, in a, a lot of countries, including well, Australia. It's, it's definitely being used, but more so on a trial phase and you need a lot of referrals. The US, it's being used after you have proven that it's you are treatment resistant and it's administered through a nasal spray. It's really fucking interesting. Anyway, um, that is the episode of today. I just wanted to kind of give a really good um, brush over different treatments for depression and it's just ever evolving. There's going to be more and more and more things coming to the surface, coming to light of what could be effective to treat depression. But at the end of the day, we still don't know what is the cause of depression. We do see differences between depressed patients' brains versus quote unquote healthy control normal brains. Um, and we do understand that it has to do with excitation, um, connectivity between brain regions, inflammation, and of course, neurotransmitters. So the monoamine hypothesis still has its place, but it definitely seems like it's not the cause. And even if you look at the monoamine hypothesis, we're just saying that there is a reduction in availability of these monoamines where we need them but it's still not saying why that is the case. So we're still really, you know, there's a lot of holes in our understanding of depression. So as you can imagine, the brain is a very fucking complicated thing. We've all got one. We know it. We all know it. But I thought that would be, it'd be cool to cover that topic. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, what's happening? I think next week I'm going to cover the benefits of caffeine for the brain. Okay. I'm going to be covering the benefits of it. Is there such thing as having too much? Can the, can caffeine be neuroprotective? And if so, what is it neuroprotective for? I'm going to be talking about is caffeine bad for you if it makes you jittery? how it makes some people really jittery and other people not. I'm going to be covering all of that because as you guys probably know, I'm a huge fan of caffeine. I feel like there's also a bit of bad press around caffeine at times. I'm going to be covering all that shit. So yeah, good times. Love that so much for all of us involved. Anyway, I will speak to you guys on Wednesday and until then, and as always, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. Listener.